children may be dismissed to junior church, so they may make their way out. Uh, looks like they're on their way. Excited to go to junior church. I hope we are just as excited uh, to begin the sermon. on Ro- And we're in Romans 11 today. Romans chapter 11, beginning verses 1 through 10 today. Um, I have some things that I want to share as we begin the passage. And first I want to share, uh, we're going to do something a little different at the end of the sermon today. And, uh, and I'm going to ask you to move a little bit at that time. It'll be a surprise, so I hope you like surprises. And just don't get too comfortable. We'll just leave it at that for now. I got this message. It is a text message, and it wasn't sent to me. It was to somebody else, and it says, Why are you not at church? And the person responds, Who is this? And the initial text says, God. And then the other person says, Why are you texting in church? Pay attention. (laughs) I thought that was somewhat humorous, and uh, God does answer prayers. There was a very poor woman, and she called a radio station asking for help from God. She calls a radio station asking for help from God. A non-believer who was also listening to this radio program decided to make fun of the woman. He got the woman's address from the radio station and told his secretary to carry a large amount of food and stuff to the woman. So he provided. He provided for her need. However, he gave the following instructions to his secretary. When, When the woman asks who sent the food... Tell her that it's from the devil. When the secretary arrived at the woman's house, the woman was happy and grateful for the help received. She started putting the food packets inside her small house. The secretary then asked her, Don't you want to know who sent the food? The woman replied, No, I don't care because when God orders, even the devil obeys. When God orders, even the devil obeys. We're going to go to Romans 11 here in just a minute. And we're going to continue this theme which we've been seeing as uh, as Paul answering an objector. Kind of, what's going on with Israel? Why has Israel rejected the gospel? Why hasn't Israel, the Jewish people, received the message? And we're just now beginning Romans 11. And by the end of Romans 11, we're going to see this culminate. As, As Paul says, at the end of this same chapter, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. But in this whole chapter, Paul, in this whole, these last few chapters, Paul has been saying, God has been consistent with his word. God has been consistent with his promises. You know, I wonder, have you ever lost something? Have you ever had a, a child go missing for a few days or a few weeks or even a few months? Well, Patrick Henry was one of our America's founders. I'm sure you've heard of him. He gave that speech, give me liberty or give me death. And I'm about 140 pages or 160 pages into a biography about Patrick Henry. My brother sent me a biography about him. A very, very, very interesting biography. Well, Patrick Henry has something like 18 children. Can you imagine? 18 children and something like 77 grandchildren. In fact, if we trace his direct descendants, they outnumber the population of Gary, Indiana. That's pretty amazing. Well, I didn't realize all of his 18 children were not from the same woman. Um, his wife died, so, uh, so it was from two women that had lots of children. Okay, And after his wife died, Patrick Henry was serving as governor of Virginia, and he's 41 years old. And his, his oldest son is serving in the Continental Army. And his oldest son is like 18, 19, 20 years old. And Patrick Henry, of course, is a widower at this point. And he's attracted to this young 18-year-old woman. 
Now remember, he's 41, she's 18. And he did not know that his son was also attracted to the same 18-year-old young lady. And his son actually had even asked for, he went to his, young, his son even went to the young lady's father and asked for her hand in marriage. But I guess the father had not granted the request yet. And Patrick Henry knew nothing about it. So Patrick Henry was attracted to the young 18-year-old and could think of nothing besides this young 18-year-old woman. And so he goes to the father and asks for her hand in marriage. And back then, status was a big deal, and Patrick Henry was quite well known of at that point, governor of Virginia. And so the father grants his 18-year-old daughter to Patrick Henry, the father. Well, obviously, his son was very emotionally upset and very disturbed by this and very disappointed, of course. And his son is also serving as a leader in the Continental Army at that point, and they had a big loss. His son, his son's troops had a huge loss. And after that loss, his son could not help but pretty much walk over the bodies of his fellow men fighting for our country. And he's so upset by that loss, by all of, the, all of what he's seen of, of war, and also not being able to marry the woman he loved. He just ran off. Nobody knew where he was. For months, nobody knew where he was. Eventually, Patrick Henry writes to George Washington, and George Washington helps him track down his son. And his son was found and found safe, thankfully enough. Now, what's the point of that history lesson? Besides, I like sharing history. You know, in the passage we're going to look at, Paul is going to show that Israel was not lost. Just like that historical story I told you, Patrick Henry's son was not lost. He was missing for a time, but he was safe, he was healthy, he was not lost. And Paul is going to continue to show Israel has not been lost. Israel has not been lost for good. And Paul is going to continue to build on this. Like, like God took care of Patrick Henry's son, God has taken care of Israel. And we're going to continue that, that, that theme. Israel has not been rejected. God preserved a remnant. God preserved a remnant. Turn to Romans chapter 11. I hope you're there uh, by now. We're going to look at each verse as we walk through this passage. And let's begin with context. One source shares, you know, we're, we've been going, this is one section. Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 are one section of Romans. In Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, it's one section dealing with Israel. What's going on with Israel? They're God's chosen people. Paul's answering the question. Well, how can we outline this section? One source shares, in Romans 9, Paul introduced the themes of election of some of the offspring of Abraham to be his children of promise in the hardening of others. So he introduced the themes in Romans 9. In chapter 10, Romans 10, Paul emphasized the need for faith in Christ. So he introduced the themes in Romans 9. In Romans 10, he, he talked about having faith in Christ. You know, how can we preach unless you have a preacher? How can you accept Christ unless somebody shares Christ with you? He introduced that. And then in chapter 11, Romans 11, Paul weaves together all of these themes, all of these themes, and Paul argues 
that there is still a future for ethnic Israel and God's program. So as we get into Romans 11, Paul's going to weave together these themes which he's introduced. You know, election of Israel. You know, God's uh, foreordination. God's plan for Israel. You know, and all that. God's plan for the Gentiles. He talked about needing faith in Christ. Now he's weaving them together. In Romans 9 to 10, Paul has been writing about the Jewish people Israel. He's been answering the question about why the Jewish people had, uh, the Israelites have rejected Jesus. Paul's been making the case that God had told them that this would happen. Notice that. We've seen that in Romans chapters 9 and 10. Paul used all tight, all kinds of Old Testament scripture. He quoted from Isaiah 1, from Isaiah chapter 10, from Deuteronomy 32. He quoted from all these Old Testament passages, from Jeremiah, many other Old Testament passages, to say that God said this would happen. God said that Jewish people would have hard hearts. Paul even quotes Isaiah showing that it's because of God's providence that a remnant remains. Isaiah said 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah had shared that, that if God did not intervene, Israel would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah and forgotten. But God in his perfect plan and in his sovereignty preserved a remnant. And God also planned that Gentiles, non-Jewish people would accept the gospel. In Romans 10, 6 through 21, last week, uh, Paul, as I shared last week, Paul wrote about the preaching of the gospel. And then also he used many Old Testament passages to again show that God said that not all would believe. And that brings us to Romans 11. In Romans 11, we see uh, at first, uh, uh, this first part, we see Israel's rejection is not complete or final. Israel's rejection is not complete or final. God has not rejected Israel for good. God has a plan for Israel. In verse 1, Paul very directly asks a question. Paul is answering an, uh, an unseen objector. Paul is, Paul is imagining that people are asking questions, and he's going to answer them. Look at verse 1. Romans 11, 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So notice Paul answers the question. He asks the question and then he answers it. He asks the question and his answer is emphatic. Has God rejected his people? By no means. Exclamation point. It's emphatic. No way. He has not, he has not rejected his people. Of course he has not rejected his people. Paul considers himself part of the remnant that has been preserved. Paul is part of that remnant. One source shares, had God cast away his people, then above all, he would have cast away the Apostle Paul, who had opposed him with all his might. Remember the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 8, it says, the Apostle Paul, then called Saul, was breathing murderous threats against Christians. Paul was persecuting Christians. God has not rejected his people. If God had rejected his people, he would have rejected Paul. One person thinks Paul's reference to himself is meant to argue that if God had really cast off Israel as a whole, he would never have chosen an Israelite to be the apostle to the Gentiles. The apostle Paul is an Israelite. His background is Pharisee. And he is the one who became the apostle to the Gentiles. If God had rejected his people, he would in no way have chosen Paul to use. Paul then gives an example. Paul himself is an Israelite. He continues, Paul is a descendant of Abraham. Paul knows his tribe as well, Benjamin. One source shares, Moses 
referred to Benjamin, Benjamin as the beloved of the Lord in Deuteronomy 33.12. It's interesting. Paul says he himself is an Israelite. Not only an Israelite, he's a descendant of, of, of Abraham. Not only a descendant of Abraham, he's of the tribe of Benjamin, the beloved of the Lord, Deuteronomy 33.12. Morris, this scholar, notes that Benjamin was the only son of Jacob born in Israel. Benjamin was younger than, than Joseph in his technicolor dream coat. Benjamin was the only son of Jacob born in Israel. Jerusalem was situated on land belonging to the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the only tribe remaining faithful to Judah. When, when Israel separated and became two kingdoms, uh, uh, Benjamin was the only tribe faithful to Judah. The first king of Israel, Saul, came from the tribe of Benjamin. There was a tradition that says Benjamin was the first of the tribes to cross through the Red Sea. Now, that's just a tradition. God did not reject Israel. God has not rejected Paul. Look at verse 2, Romans 11, verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? So now he's going to bring up this Old Testament passage dealing with Elijah. And this is really, really fascinating, a really, really awesome passage. Paul restates to make his case. God has not rejected his people. And then Paul adds, whom he foreknew. Foreknew, that means there was a, a, a part of God's perfect plan with Israel. Paul for new, God for new Israel. Psalm 94, 14 is a cross-reference you can look up later. Paul uses the example of Elijah. Look at verse 3 now. Romans 10, 3. Lord, remember this is Elijah. I'm going to put verse 2 and 3 together. Let's read verses 2 and 3. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Now verse 3. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Those verses come from 1 Kings 19.10, 1 Kings 19.14, and 1 Kings 19.18. This is about Elijah talking to God after he conquered the prophets of Baal. If you look up 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 20 through 40... Actually, I want to say that's chapter 18, actually. It's around there. It's an awesome passage. Elijah goes, and he just, God uses Elijah to conquer the prophets of Baal. It's a powerful passage. Elijah goes out, and he goes against the prophets of Baal. They're on this mountain, and Elijah says, bring your prophets. Bring your sacrifices. If Baal is God, choose him. Let him consume these sacrifices. Let him call down fire from heaven and consume the sacrifices. And you know what happens? The prophets of Baal go first, and nothing happens. Absolutely nothing happens. They wait, and they wait, and nothing happens. Elijah gets sarcastic. He says, where's Baal at? Maybe he's gone aside, which basically means maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he's busy. Nothing absolutely happens. Baal's uh, prophets, their time ends, and God brings down fire from heaven and consumes the sacrifices. It is awesome. Well, after that, Elijah seemed to have some type of emotional letdown, some type of discouragement, some type of depression, maybe even being suicidal. And he flees because Jezebel was after him. It's amazing. We look at this and we think, how could he be running from Jezebel when he just saw God act in all his might? Why is he running from Jezebel? Remember, these people were human too. And he flees. And God encounters him. And God says, what's up? What's wrong, Elijah? What's up? What's going on? Why are you so downcast? Why are you so depressed? 
And Elijah says, I've conquered the prophets of Baal. I've done this, but all the prophets have, have, have gone the wrong way. And he says, I alone am left. I alone am left. And Paul right here, in verse 4, replies to him, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah thought he was alone, but he was not alone. There were 7,000 men who had not bowed the knee to Baal. And that's, that's the passage Paul is using here. Paul is saying, you think all, all Israel has rejected the Messiah. Not all of them have. There is a partial hardening, but God has not rejected Israel. There is a remnant. And Paul goes deep into the Old Testament scripture to make the case, which he shares in verse 5. God preserved a remnant. Look at verse 5, Romans eleven five. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. What is Paul saying? God has not rejected all Israel. And I'm going to come back to this in a little bit because we may think God has rejected the church across America right now. We may think the church is dead. We're going to come back in a few minutes. Remember, you know, that's not the case. Some Israelites will be saved. Uh, back to this verse. God has kept a remnant. Now, it's very interesting if you, if you dive into the, into the Greek and to the background of this idea of a remnant. One source shares, one technical source shares, one, uh, it shares a footnote, and I always read footnotes. There's a lot of good stuff in footnotes. It, it points out, this person named Nidren points out that the existence of a remnant in any age depends not upon the character of the people, but wholly on God's purpose and election. That's interesting. The idea of a remnant is not about the character of the people. It's about God's purpose. Remember, you can see this in Deuteronomy 9 and many places in the Old Testament. God always says, I did not choose you, Israel, because you were better. I did not choose you because of anything you've done. I've chosen you because of my grace. And it's the same thing with this remnant. (laughs) It's about God. And it's the same thing about our salvation. It's always about God. The remnant and election are interchangeable concepts. A remnant is not just a group of separate individuals taken out of a people doomed to overthrow. It is itself the chosen people. It is Israel in noose, basically Israel in summary. This remnant is about God saying, I am going to preserve Israel. I have a purpose of Israel, on on Israel. God is still at work. This remnant is chosen by God and they're chosen by grace. It is not about works. It is about God's grace. Its salvation has always been the same. It's always about God's grace. And this remnant chosen by God. Look at verse 6, Romans 11, 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace, right? If you can earn it, it's not grace. If you could earn your salvation today, the cross was pointless. Jesus went, went through that for nothing. It's always about grace. It's always a free gift of salvation. In his book, this is a really, really good uh, story, a true story, I would believe. In his book, Connecting Points, Paul Metzger retells the story of the friendship between the Jewish writer Eile Weissel and the French Christian writer, Francois Moric. While, while in Auschwitz, Weissel was torn from his mother and sisters, and he was forced to watch his father get beaten to death by Nazi guards. Can you imagine that? A child at Auschwitz, forced to watch his father beaten to death by Nazi guards. After the war, Weissel chose to keep silent about his traumatic experiences. But as a young writer, Weissel had the chance to interview Moric. 
Morink was a prominent Christian writer and former leader in the French resistance movement. So this guy, the Jewish, the Jewish young man, is meeting this Christian writer who is part of the, part of the French resistance movement, a good, a good person. Though he respected Morink, Weissel arrived at Morink's apartment with an ulterior motive. He wanted Morick to help him meet the Prime Minister of France, which would have been a boost to Weissel's emerging writing career. In a 1996 interview, here's how Weissel recounts the first meeting. Remember Weissel. Weissel is the man who saw his father beaten to death, saw all the atrocities at Auschwitz, and he's obviously angry at God. And Morick is a Christian man who likely represented God to Weissel. This is how Weissel writes. Morik was an old man then, but when I came to Morik, he agreed to see me. We met and we had a painful discussion. The problem was that Morik was in love with Jesus. He was the most decent person I ever met in that field as a writer, as a Christian writer. Honest sense of integrity. And he was in love with Jesus. He spoke only of Jesus. Whatever I would ask, Jesus. Finally, when he said Jesus again, Weissel says, I couldn't take it. And I was discourteous, which I regret to this day. I said, Mr. Morink, ten years or so ago, I have seen children, hundreds of children, hundreds of Jewish children who suffered more than Jesus did on his cross. And we do not speak about it. Weissel says, I felt all of a sudden so embarrassed. I closed my notebook and went to the elevator. He ran after me. He pulled me back. He sat down in his chair and I in mine. And he began weeping. Morik weeps at the pain that Weissel had seen. Weissel continues, I have rarely seen an old man weep like that, and I felt like such an idiot. I felt like a criminal. This man didn't deserve that. He was really a pure man, a member of the resistance. I did not know what to do. We stayed there like that. He weeping, and I closed in my own remorse. And then at the end, he simply said, you know, maybe you should talk about it. He took me to the elevator and embraced me. And that year, the 10th year, I began writing Night, my novel about the Holocaust. After it was translated from Yiddish into French, I sent it to him. We were very, very close friends until his death. Later in his life, Weissel declared that it was Morik, the man who declared himself in love with Christ, who influenced him to share his story and become a writer. And that's about the Jewish people in the 20th century. God has not forgotten his people whom he loves, whom he is still foreknew. So now Paul gives substance to his claim about a remnant in verses 7 through 10. Look at verse 7, Romans eleven seven. 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Remember, he's kind of still answering an unseen objector. What then? There's a question. You know, he answers. Israel failed to obtain it. Israel missed the mark. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Israel failed. They missed the mark. They were seeking the Messiah, but they missed the elect. That is a chosen one. The remnant did obtain it. The remnant did obtain it. The rest were hardened. We've talked about this. There's a mystery to how God hardens and why. But it does seem that most hardened also hardened their own hearts as well. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 comes from Isaiah 29.10 and Deuteronomy 29.4. He's still quoting all these Old Testament passages. Verse 8. He says, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Notice how he says that, as it is written. 
that means that he is going to quote from Scripture. Anytime you see, as it is written in the New Testament, they're about to quote Old Testament prophecy. The first line was from Isaiah 29.10, and the last lines are adapted from Deuteronomy 29, verse 4. God gave them over. God let them go their own way. They basically did what McDonald's does. Have it your way. <laughs> you know, have it your way. You want that? Have it your way. God let them go their own way. They had eyes, but they could not see. They had ears that could not hear. Paul quotes from Moses here. First he quoted from Isaiah and then Deuteronomy, which, which would be Moses. Later in verse 25 of this chapter, Romans eleven twenty-five, Paul will say that a partial hardening has come upon Israel. It is only partial. It's not forever. Paul's made his case from Isaiah, and now he will make his case from David. Verses 9 through 10 come from Psalm 69, 22, and 23. Look at verses 9 and 10. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Paul takes this passage from David in Psalm 69, and Paul applies it to Israel. Israel had darkened eyes and became servant to others. John MacArthur shares, a person's table was thought to be a place of safety, but the table of the ungodly is a trap. Many people trust in the very things that damn them. That's from John MacArthur. One source shares, a Jewish nation missed salvation because they sought for it by works. The elect portion was given mercy, but the majority was hardened in unbelief. St. Augustine, the church father, shared, Behold, mercy and judgment, mercy on the elect who have obtained it, who have obtained the righteousness of God, but judgment upon the others who have been blinded. And yet the former have believed because they willed it, while the latter have not believed because they have not willed it. Hence, mercy and judgment were executed in their own wills. Is divine sovereignty mixed with our free will? Let's make some applications. We must remember that we do not know the Lord's mind. The Lord is still at work. If you read ahead in chapter 11, Paul's going to end Romans chapters 1 through 11 with this awesome doxology. And part of it's going to be, quoting from Isaiah, who has known the mind of the Lord? We don't know. We do know the Lord is at work. We know what the Lord shares with us. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. We must not be like Elijah and think that we are the only Christians left. Many times we do think that we are alone as the only Christians, but we must be encouraged. God is with us, and many times there are more Christians supporting us than we realize. Further, even if we are missionaries and we are truly the only Christians, in that case, people are praying. Do you realize that? People are praying for those missionaries. In, Af in Afghanistan right now, I'm sure that many of the Christians think they are all alone. And that's why it's important for us to be building them up in prayer. Building them up in prayer. We likely, though, have more Christians around us in the workplace than we know. We likely have more Christians around us in the schools than we know. We likely have more Christians around us in our community than we know. God generally always preserves a remnant. Maybe if we speak up, others will as well. On Sunday night, we had, were at the drive-in movie, and I was talking to another parent whose kids go to Heartland Christian schools, and the parents' kids are in football and uh, other activities. And, you know, they're talking about when to have these team meetings and when to have these practices, and this is not 
uh, for Heartland. It's, it's another type of football program. And uh, she was actually talking about a combination of sports. And she commented that oftentimes, you know, they keep trying to schedule on Sunday mornings. And she's thinking, am I the only one that goes to church? Am I the only parent, the only mom with kids that go to church? Oftentimes, maybe if we speak up, others will as well. But we need to, in the boldness of Christ, with the Holy Spirit inside of us, we need to speak up. And many times, others will as well. Um, Julie Royce used to be on Moody Radio and still is a pretty influential Christian journalist. And she's written about and interview people who are on school boards or go to certain school meetings. And this was specifically in Chicago where they were talking about many different issues such as the LGBTQ agenda in classrooms, you know, allowing uh, girls and boys locker rooms and vice versa and critical race theory and other things. And she would, and she talked to some of the people she was interviewing said, you know, people thank us for speaking up. And they'll say, thank you for thanking me, but come to the meetings and help me speak up. You know, come alongside me. Come alongside. Sometimes if we speak up, maybe others will follow. We are not as alone as we think we are. Notice the remnant in verse 5 is chosen by grace. We must remember God's sovereignty and God's grace. God's grace is amazing. The remnant is not about what they did or do, and neither is our salvation. Verses 8 through 10 uses references from Isaiah 29.10, Deuteronomy 29.4, and Psalm 69.22 and 23 to remind us that God has been consistent with his promises. God has been consistent with his promises. We must worship the Lord, remembering that he does not lie or change his mind. And, and that's in Numbers 23, 19, and 1 Samuel 15, 29. God does not lie. God does not change his mind. He does not need to. He is omniscient. He knows all things. He is omnipresent, present everywhere, and even outside of time. I read this last fall, and I might have shared it with some of you. This comes from the president of Asbury Theological Seminary. Uh, Dr. Tennant. And Dr. Tennant wrote the following. I found it fascinating and it's worth repeating. He writes, my sixth great-grandfather was William Tennant. He was born in Scotland in 1673, went to the University of Edinburgh. It's spelled Edinburgh, but they say Edinburgh. Went to the University of Edinburgh, as I later did, and migrated to the New World in 1718. In 1727, he founded a theological college known as the Log College, which provided pastors for the First Great Awakening. The Log College eventually became renamed the College of New Jersey, and finally it was relocated in the first town that each merchant in the town would put up $20 to support the university. A little town named Princeton rose the challenge, and the rest is history. And so the Log College became Princeton, but that's not the interesting part. William Tennant's children all became part of what was known at that time as the New Lights, as opposed to the Old Lights. These were great awakening preachers, and they were denouncing religious formalism, promoting revival, conversion experiences, direct experiences with God, and pietism. These, of course, are themes we are familiar with in the ministry of John Wesley, another one of the great streams of the Great Awakening. William Tennant Jr., my fifth great-grandfather, had just graduated from the Log College and was preparing to take his ordination exams. In those days, it was a deeply classical training, and he was conversing in Latin with his theological tutor when suddenly, with a big heave and a cry... He collapsed to the ground and died, though he was only 26 years old. 
in the 18th century, there were four main ways to determine if someone was dead. And you're probably familiar with all four of them. Pulse, death pallor, death dew, and rigor mortis. William Tennant Jr. experienced all of this, and so he was pronounced dead, and the funeral was set for the next day. Later that day, another doctor, a second doctor, came and examined the body and thought he felt a slight warmth underneath his armpits. So he called in another doctor, a third doctor. The other doctor examined him and could not feel any warmth at all. This was a time before such things as EKGs, so he used some methods. He had no pulse, death pallor, stiff as a board, again declared dead for the second time. The next day was the day of the funeral. People gathered for the funeral, and just minutes before, they were, clo- they were going to close the casket and bring him out for burial. Another doctor said he wanted to examine him again. Now, this is interesting. They've already had the funeral. They are about to close the casket. One of my greatest fears, being buried alive. They are about to close the casket. But listen. Another doctor wanted to examine him again. William Sr., his father, and Gilbert, his brother, did not want to allow for it because everyone had already gathered for the funeral and William Jr. had now been officially declared dead by two different doctors. But there was a fifth test that was done. That was to shine a very bright light, a very bright light, into someone's eyes and see if their pupils restricted. They did this, and their pupils remained dilated. But... He saw at the last minute a little shimmer of the eye, and for just a second, William Tennant's body shivered and then fell dead again. They called off the funeral, took him out of the casket, wrapped the body in warm towels, and eventually he came too. He could not speak. He had to learn everything all over again over the next two years. Though, get this, his Latin came back before his English. Here's a main point. Dr. Tennant, president of Asbury Theological Seminary, says this. He says, I am alive this morning because William Tennant woke up. Praise God. I was thus in 10 to 15 minutes from not existing. If William Tennant Jr. had not woken up, I would not be here today because he went on to get married, have a family, including my fourth great-grandfather, and serve a church for the next 43 years until his actual death. I'm here this morning, five generations later, because William Tennant Jr. woke up. Ephesians 5 says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The culture, this is still from Dr. Tennant, the culture has declared the church dead and has already called for our funeral service. But the God of resurrection is still at work. The culture is ready to close the casket on the church and declare that the Christian gospel is irrelevant to the needs of the world. But the gospel remains the power of God until salvation. And our God is still on the throne. The culture sees a church not as a solution to the culture's dilemma, but part of the problem. But Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is our great hope. God is not finished with us. And he has called us into the world with all of its dangers and frightening problems that, that all seem insurmountable. Be the agent of healing for our communities. Never forget the distinctive voice of God's revelation to us. And remember, even enough, remember, even though Nebuchadnezzar heats up his fiery furnace seven times hotter, God still has his meshechs. Shedrachs and Abednegoes. He will not bow to the idols of the world. So we as a church need to wake up. 
In this passage I talked about, this is time for you to respond. In this passage I talked about, notice how Isaiah, and we saw it the British way, Isaiah. (laughs) Notice that Isaiah felt like he was all alone. And what did God say? I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God said, you're not all alone. I have preserved a remnant. And going with what Dr. Tennant shared and what the Apostle Paul shared, most importantly, God has preserved a remnant, right? We're going to close in a moment with the song, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Create in me a clean heart, O God. You know, we have these altars at the church and... Nobody ever comes forward, though I know that we have great, great things to pray for. So I'm going to ask you to come forward today during this song. When we read, Create in me a clean heart, O God, do you know that's from Psalm 51.10? That's David's prayer of confession after his sin with Bathsheba. And do you know what Psalm 51.12 says? Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Do you ever pray that? Restore unto me, Lord God, the joy of your salvation. When we have God's salvation, when we remember God's salvation, when we have the joy of God's salvation, what do we do? We share it. We share it with other people. And many times when we speak up, other people will speak up too. They just need to know they're not alone. So what I would like to ask you to do during this song, Create in Me a Clean Heart, O God, during this prayer, prayerful song really, I'm going to ask you to come forward. If you're a Christian, and most of you would claim to be, maybe all of you would claim to be, if you're a Christian who cares about the gospel and cares about sharing the gospel, I want to ask that you come forward and kneel or stand at the altars. If you want, you can come forward and sit in these front pews. Nobody except the worship leadership and Tim sits in them anyways. And, uh, and they'll be up here anyways. Come and you can kneel at the altars. You can stand. You're only going to be standing during the song anyways. And I'm going to ask you to come forward signifying you care about the gospel. You want other people to come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And take it further. When, when you come forward, that doesn't mean I'm, going, I'm, I'm not saying that you're going to go out of this place and you're going to go share the gospel with 10 people today. That'd be awesome if you would. But I'm just asking you to come forward saying you care about the gospel. You care. You want your children and your grandchildren to know the Lord. You want your coworkers to know the Lord. You want your neighbors to know the Lord. We're going to have a friend day. On, actually, it's going to be a bring a friend, come back to church weekend, September 18th and 19th. You can you could come forward thinking, I'm going to pray about who to invite to church that day. But you're coming forward saying, I am part of the church. I'm praying the church wakes up. And I know and believe that Jesus is the hope of the world. Do we believe that? Amen? Amen. Jesus is the hope of the world. Not no politician. Not anyone else. Even though this last year, I would have thought that, that, that the politicians were the God of this world. But they, they might be the God of this world, but they're not the Savior. So I'm going to invite the worship team up. I want to say a brief prayer. And then after we sing this one time, or two times, I think they're going to sing it twice. After we sing it twice, I'm going to give a prayer over all those that come forward. If you're sitting there and you have trouble walking, but I know that you would like to come forward if you could, maybe try to raise your hand or as much as you can. Maybe others around you can help you hold your hand up. That way, that works for you. But you're coming forward saying you care about the gospel. You're going to pray uh, for, for more opportunities to be a contagious Christian and spread the gospel. Let's pray. Lord God, as we give an opportunity for response right now, I pray that the Holy Spirit would convict us. We are silent way too long. 
You call us to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8. We receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon us and we are your witnesses. The Holy Spirit empowers us to be your witnesses. 2 Timothy 2.10. The Apostle Paul said, I will, do, I will endure, endure all things for the sake of the elect. That is those who will be saved. Romans 15, 20 and 21, we see Paul's passion to take the gospel to those who have never heard. Romans 1, 16 through 17, Paul said he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also to the Greek. Oh, Lord God, may we not be ashamed, and may we show that we are not ashamed, because we are willing to come forward right now as a testimony saying we are part of the church. We may think the church is dead. We may think, or the world may think the church is dead, and they're calling for a funeral, but she is alive, and she's awake, and may this means something right now as the Holy Spirit convicts us to come forward. And Lord God, take that and use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.